Well, tonight we're going to be uh, in chapter, um, we're going to actually start in chapter uh, 11, and we've been going pretty strong, and, and the Lord is good, is He not? Amen, amen. We have really uh, been picking up our pace here in the Kings. We cover about one chapter a night, and we'll do, that, we'll do the same tonight, chapter 11. So let's begin with prayer. Lord, your word says, for alone my soul waits in silence, for my hope is in him. The psalmist knew well where the spring of life comes from. It comes from the one who created the word of God, the one who is the, is the sustainer of all things, the one who knows everything about us even the things that we don't understand. Lord, uh, Psalm 139 clearly tells us that your thoughts toward us are greater than the numbers of sand on the beach. That seems unfathomable to me. I can't even wrap my brain around that. But that's what your word says. And your word is truth. And so tonight we, we stand on the promises of God. The scripture says that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The word tells us that we should grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is our hope tonight. So join us, Lord, in this time. Let this be a time of fresh, uh, just a fresh incoming of your spirit through the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I don't know if you've kept up with what's happening, you know, the, the revival up in Asbury uh, at the college there, and that's real exciting, and now it's just kind of spun off into other colleges and universities. And, well, it reminded me of something, and that is, this is always true. Uh, revivals, generally speaking, begin with youth. They're always on the vanguard of a revival. It's generally the youth. And I was thinking, why is that? Probably because they're just so open to God. And uh, then God just begins to work and begins to change hearts. And, of course, the revival is about reviving. It's reviving hearts, reviving souls. There is salvation that can come through a revival, but quite honestly, it's for the believer to be revived. Uh, maybe we uh, were saved, but we've not yielded to the work of the Holy Spirit, which is the process of sanctification that should be happening in our lives every day. And sometimes we get a little uh, stuck in our ways. And we're not looking to the Holy Spirit as much. 
We're not listening to the Holy Spirit. Uh, I put it this way to someone last week. I said, you get up in the morning and you ask the Lord, Lord, what would you like me to eat today? And he says, have an orange. And you're like, that sounds good to me. I'll have an orange. The next day you get up, Lord, what would you have me eat today? Try an orange again. And you have an orange. The third day, Lord, orange. Fourth day, you get up and you eat an orange. Fifth day, an orange. Sixth day, an orange. And you're not seeking the Lord. And then finally you're like, My, I, I just don't feel like I have the same passion for God or for the Word that I once had. Lord, wh wh where did I go wrong when you stopped asking me what you, what you should eat? Because when you thought it was an orange, I had changed it to an apple. <laughs> now, I've, that's facetious in the sense that you're hearing God like that. But, uh, but the idea that to walk with God is a daily seeking and searching. Jesus said, or not Jesus, but the Old Testament says, you'll seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. It's almost as if God's playing hide and seek. You'll seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. That's what God wants from us, all of our heart. That's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of your being. Every day. So revival is an opportunity for people who have grown calloused. Their hearts have hardened, even though they're saved, to once again be refreshed by God to be broken over their sinfulness. Revival's about, re it's about repentance. If, if it's a true revival, there's great repentance of sin. You'll hear people crying and wailing and just, just for whatever reason, they're seeing in that moment their sin the way God sees their sin. They're seeing the damage that that sin has caused to them and to others the way God wants them to see it. And so we should continue to pray for that revival to continue to move. I pray it goes from the universities and then it starts picking up in churches, you know, and that we experience at Bureau Bible a fresh awakening of God. And I'm not about experiences. I, I just not. I don't, I, they, they can be good, you know, an experience can be a good thing, obviously. But man, um, I'm not following Jesus because of an experience. I'm following Jesus because the Word is faithful and true, and every day I need it, and every day God is with me. I, I know that God is with me. I don't need to experience Him to know that. And there are times where He just overwhelms us and gives us an experience, you know? And then there's times where uh, I don't sense that, but I'm, I'm relying on what I know here. It's true. Amen? And it takes greater faith, by the way. Listen, it takes, this is, Jesus, I'm, I'm, this is paraphrasing Jesus. It takes greater faith to believe when you don't have the experience than when you do. Because that's what he said to Thomas. Thomas, touch, go ahead. You can see it, you can touch it. And Thomas like, wow, you are the son of God. And he said, yep, that's wonderful that you get it. But it's even greater, it's even more blessed to not touch me, but just believe without the experience of touching me. It takes greater faith to do that. So, I, I have a cousin, Barry Schaefer. Barry's a 
just a wonderful godly man. His father is brother to my to my uh, my grandpa, so he's not really my first cousin, but we call each other cuz cuz. Hey, cuz, how's it going? And we went to college together. We were in the same school at the same time, but uh, Barry. Uh, drove down from Ohio to Asbury and went to, had a full day there. And, and he said it was, Greg, it was immediately when I walked into, I didn't even go in the, 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 the chapel building where the revival started. He goes, I went into the seminary prayer chapel because they weren't going to open it till 1.30 in the day. And it was morning, like 9 o'clock. So he went into the prayer chapel. He goes, I walked in the doors and started weeping over my sinfulness. God just abruptly revealed to me my sin. And I ended up spending the majority of the morning just in that room with my Bible open and letting God just wash the word over my, over my life and over my, my thoughts. So pretty cool, pretty cool. Uh, let's pick this up. We've kind of gotten way off course, but that's, that's a happening. Anytime there's a, a seems to be God doing, hey, we're always saying, let's join God in what he's doing. Amen? Okay, so that's why we bring that up. Now, uh, 2 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when Athaliah, or Athaliah, the mother of Ahaz, anybody remember who Ahaz is? Or Ahaziah, rather? He was the king of Judah and was, a, was a, um, a diplomatic friend and relative to the king of the north. He was the king of Judah, and his relative was the king uh, of the north, northern kingdom, Israel. So the day that Jehu took out the king of the north, remember he shot him with the arrow? And then this guy... Ahaziah, the king from the southern kingdom, had come up to, to meet with him. He, he turned his chariot and took off, and, hit, and, and Jehu's men hunted him down and, and, and mortally wounded him. He ended up in the, in the uh, field of Megiddo, or the valley of Megiddo, and he died. So, so now we're talking about his mother. He's dead. He's no longer the king of Judah in the south. And now when Athaliah or Athaliah saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. What? These are her grandchildren. She took out her grandkids because she wanted to seize the throne on the death of her son. She too was wicked, like her sister Jezebel, part of the family. Remember now, last week we studied and learned that Jehu dealt with the northern kingdom completely and removed the, uh, the presence of, of, of anything to do with Ahab and Jezebel, not only taking out family members and relatives, but also going after the, the prophets of Baal, and the people who worshipped Baal. Remember, he put on that big guise where he, he said, we're going to have a Baal worship service. Everybody who worships Baal, come. We're going to, and make sure there's no, nobody here that doesn't worship Baal. They were thinking, this is wonderful. And that was the end of them. 
So the northern kingdom has been cleansed. But the southern kingdom, the influence of Ahab and Jezebel, is great. And if you really want to know the truth, it was Jezebel whose father was the king of Sidon, a pagan kingdom along the western edge of the, west, of the Mediterranean, or eastern edge of the Med, western, uh, it's, it's on the west side of Samaria, which is the northern kingdom capital. And, and so she brought, when she was, and kings back in that day, as it happened even in more recent you know, days, kings would have their children married off to other kings to keep their diplomacy up to keep their kingdom strong. And this was one of those arrangements. So she was wed to, uh, who, was the, who was his father? I forget his father, but he was, a, he was in the line of David. And this, his boy, Ahaziah, was in the line of David. But he was mar- he, his wife was this woman, this wicked woman. So... Um, What's that? Uh, his mother, yes, that's right. Now, who exactly is Athaliah? Okay, so just if you want to write this down, just so you have it, I, I kind of mentioned it, but let's just make sure we clarify. She was the daughter of Ahab. I'm sorry, I said she was sister of Jezebel. She was the daughter of Jezebel and Ahab and, a, and was given to King Jehoram of Judah as a bride. So... Then her son, after Jehoram was killed, uh, her son Ahaziah became the king. And she brought, she introduced, just as Jezebel introduced in the northern kingdom, Baal worship, she introduced it in the southern kingdom. Okay, she's like her mama. Like her mama. Now, you rem- now I guess we should pause here and just talk about the temptation of power and control. Have you ever noticed, I only know it from working in churches, being a shepherd of a church, people who are very calm and just seem to have their wits about them and they, they're prudent and they have reflective thoughts. They're just people that I come to admire and, and so you, you, you begin to think maybe they would serve well on the the finance team, or maybe they would serve well as the head of, of the of the uh, whatever, the usher ministry or whatever. And so, you put them in those roles, and immediately they change, and they become tyrants. You didn't see it, but they couldn't handle the power, and the control. They they loved having control. And literally, it changed them into a different person. I'm sure you've experienced that with people. They're, they're good without power and control, but you give them a little power and control, and man, they just they, they go crazy. Um, so that, that's really the case when you think about when you think about uh, Ahab, he didn't seem like a bad guy when he wasn't king. But then he married Jezebel and became king, and man, that guy and his wife, they went, they went AWOL. And then their children went AWOL. And they want to control and have power of everything. And really, when you see someone like that, 
it, it's, it's people who in their the heart is revealed. That's what happens. Once they have the power and control, the heart is revealed. And you see the selfishness. You see the self-preservation. You see the self-protection. You see the self, um, they're, they're, they're wanting to establish their name. I, I, I want my name to be great in my church. I want people to know that it was me that set that ministry up or me that organized where there was disorder. It's about them. It's not about the ministry, and it's, not, it's certainly not about worshiping God. And it can happen, and it does happen in churches all the time. And I think the litmus test for knowing how to, to not allow someone like that to come into power is to really follow what the Bible teaches in Titus about deacons, what type of characteristics a deacon is to have, and what type of a characteristic the elder is to have. They're really the same. The, the characteristics are all the same. Only one difference. Elders must be able to teach. Deacons, no. But they are administrative and they carry out many ministries in the church. So if you don't see the characteristics of a deacon that are found in Scripture, don't put them in power because it'll go to their head. See, one of the characteristics of a, of a deacon or an elder is that they, they're humble. They're humble. They're temperate. They, they, they don't rush to, to irrational decisions. They think through things. And most importantly, they're filled with the Spirit of God. God is the one who will lead them in whatever it is they do. They're not about themselves. They're not about making a name for themselves. They're about making sure that, that under their leadership, God's name is great. And that the people that serve with them, they're not under them. They're with them. They're just one of them. Big difference. So I just think it's, it's an opportunity to look at that. When you look at this family and how wicked and how corrupt, uh, this is, this is a, a great place to think about that in our day. It can happen to anyone... If you're not really called of God and if you're not filled with the Spirit, you don't have a humble spirit, you'll, you could easily succumb to the temptation of control and power. And it happens. Okay. Now, years before the king of Judah, who was Jehoshaphat, remember him? We studied Jehoshaphat. He married his son to his, this daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, hoping to make an alliance with those wicked and apostate leaders. Now, what you're seeing that we're reading in chapters 9, 10, and 11 is the fallout of choosing a spouse that God does not honor. I want to speak to parents, and of course in this room, I, I don't know that any of you have teenage daughters or sons, they might be a little older than that or a lot older than that. You need to be real careful how you give your children a sense of direction in choosing a spouse. You need to be very careful because a, a, a child can meet someone and think they're wonderful. And, and literally, that person has incredible characteristics but they don't fear God like your family fears God. 
And I've seen way too many parents who just look past that. Yeah, but look at all the good qualities. And boy, he really loves her and he really cares for her. He's doing all these good things. And they look past it. And what they're literally doing is signing off on allowing their child to be unequally yoked. This is a big problem in churches today. A lot of young people who get married have marital conflict. Significant. And parents, you're not to blame for it, but you contributed to the negative, not the positive. You see, once a Muffy's here, and Muffy is a licensed, trained, professional counselor, Christian counselor. So, you, Muffy, you can feel free to correct me at the close. <laughs> but I, 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 I submit. But in my, in my experience, once a person becomes emotionally connected to that other person that's unsaved, really hard to turn back. So you really don't have that influence after they're already emotionally connected. You have less. I'm not saying you don't have any, but you have less. But while they're just beginning to think about that person and talk about them, you usher in the question, do they know the Lord? Not do they go to church. A lot of people go to church. It doesn't mean anything. They're 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 people that aren't saved that sit on boards and committees in churches. Uh, but do they know the Lord? How do you know that they know the Lord? Do they ever bring up the Lord? Or are you the one that always initiates conversation about God? So you're, you're trying to help your child, and I think this is speaking hopefully to some folks listening from live stream who have small children. You're trying to help guide your child to consider these things before they become emotionally attracted and connected to that person. Because once that happens, it is really hard to see them turn away. Okay? And this is Jehoshaphat. This is the fallout. What's the fallout for Jehoshaphat? That Baal worship came into Judah and into, into Israel. He is the founder of, of that falling away because he, uh, he married his son off to the daughter that was wicked of a king, a, a pagan king. Remember when God brought the Israelites into the promised land, and he, one of the first things he said was, do not intermarry. In fact, more than that, all the people groups that are in this land, it's not their land. I'm giving this land to you. Therefore, drive them out of the land. Don't let them stay. Don't even make them your servants because God knew that those other people groups that had pagan worship would rub off on Israel more than Israel would rub off on them. And so God was like, in the beginning, before you build relationships, don't do it. Now, that's Old Testament. By the way, uh, interracial marriage is not a problem. It's not a sin 
in the New Testament. But during that period of time when Israel was being established as God's people, he wanted to raise up a nation that would proclaim his name and his name only and let other nations see the greatness of that one God. So he, that's why he didn't want them to intermarry, because it would water down their belief in God, and they'd start believing in other gods. So Old Testament, it's, it was a problem. New Testament, it's not a problem, because Christ now rules in the hearts of all men, and uh, the priesthood of all believers, people from every tongue, every nation, belong to the Lord. Amen? So it's a whole different setup now. But back then, that was a problem. All right, now... Um, verse 2. Man, we only covered one verse. I'm, I am not a good communicator. All right, verse 2. But, but Jehoshaphat, now we got a new name, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, who was the king of Judah in the south until he died, until he was killed. And she took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, the grandson of Athaliah, the woman who's killing off all the grandchildren. Well, this woman, we don't even know who she is, Jehoshaphat. The Bible doesn't say anything about her. She was probably a, one of the nurses of these grandchildren of the king. So while they were still in the nursing stage, he was one of the nurses. And so she took uh, Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. Can you imagine a mother, a grandmother, killing the children of her son just so she could become the queen of Judah? And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. So, she, so the nurse, she was not the nurse, but she hid them. We don't know anything about this woman. But man, what a godly woman she was. Thus they hid from Athaliah, and so that he was not put to death. So one of the children, Joash, was the only one who survived the extermination. And by the way, Athaliah literally is exterminating the line of David, the lineage of David, because her son, uh, Ahaziah, was in that line. And now all of his children, one of those boys, could have been the next one to keep the lineage of David going forward. You say, what's the, the, the importance of that? The Messiah, when he comes, must come through the lineage of David. They came to a point where only one child was left, where that lineage would have been cut off completely, exterminated. That was her goal, and that was Satan's goal. Okay, But guess what? When she was trying to hunt down all the little grandchildren and kill them, God set aside one child. There's no way, many are the plans of a man's heart, but the Lord's plan prevails. Amen? And that's exactly what happens here. Now, this little-known woman, Jehoshaphat, had an important place in God's plan of the ages. Second Chronicles, write this down, Second Chronicles chapter 22, verse 11. It tells us that Jehoshaphat was the wife of Jehoiada, who is the high priest under Athaliah, the high priest of Judah. 
who was serving as the high priest during that wicked, corrupt time, his wife was the one who hid the baby away. But she wasn't the daughter of Ethaliah. Okay? Uh, she was likely half-sister from a different mother. Now, this little boy remained with this nurse hidden away for six years, it says in verse 3, hidden in the house of the Lord while Athaliah reigned over the land. So the whole time she's reigning as queen, this little boy is growing up in the temple. Who does that sound like? Samuel. Samuel, raised in the temple. Probably like Samuel, learning certain little tasks that he would carry out for the priest that lived in the temple. Now, it's important to remember that while Ahaziah was a bad king who made evil alliances, he was still a descendant of David. So I want you to think about this. Again, you're, with, you're one child away from wiping out the, 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 the prophetic word that Jesus, the Messiah, would come through the lineage of David. That's pretty close. Wow. Pretty close. Josephus, who was the Jewish historian, he tells us that the bedroom where the child was kept and nursed was a room where spare furniture and mattresses were kept or stored. So it's not a room she would have been looking to find one of the grandchildren. And so for six years, he lived in that little quarters. I'm sure there were times where they brought him out. Uh, but this little boy grew up being weaned in the temple. Now, Samuel was weaned by his mother, Hannah, and then he was taken to the temple after he was weaned. This little boy was weaned in the temple. But in the, so that's pretty cool. The one child that, that lives, God wraps his arms around him, brings him into the temple, the place where God's presence would come and protects this little boy. Is that not cool? In Isaiah 54, God says, I will be your father. I will be your husband to the widow. God serves in those roles, and he certainly did that for this little boy. Verse 4, but in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of the Karaites and of the guards, and had them come to him in the house of the Lord. Now again, Jehoiada is the priest. And he made a covenant with them, and put them under oath in the house of the Lord, and he showed them the king's son. First time that the revelation is out, that one who's from the lineage of David is still living. So the priest is a godly man who's concerned with restoring the throne to the lineage of David. He hides this little boy, and now it's time to introduce this child at age probably six or seven, seven years old tops, to the guards, those who are most trusted by him. So uh, the secret's out. The royal line of David will continue. And so he, he made a covenant with these, these soldiers. He made them take an oath. In the house of the Lord, by the way, 
And from that, the place where the oath was made in the context of the oath, we learned that the worship of the true God was not dead in Judah. So the, both the priest and these soldiers still believed in the one true and living God. They had not bowed down to Baal. Just like in the day of Elijah, God said there's 7,000 who haven't bowed, neither have these men. And these captains and bodyguards, Richard, you've got to love this man. These captains and bodyguards were the ones that it was revealed that there's one child left in the lineage of David. And these guys became escorts. And they became responsible before God for this boy's life. Can you imagine the kind of detail that these guys had? Okay? And they took it serious, believe me. You don't, you're not going to walk up to this little boy. <laughs> You'll have a sword drawn on you so quick. You, you know, I mean, these guys were serious about serious business. Verse 5, and he commanded them. This is what the priest said to them. This is the thing that you shall do. One-third of you, those who come off duty on the Sabbath and guard the king's house, another third being at the gate, sir, and a third at the gate behind the guards shall guard the palace. And the two divisions of you which come on duty and force on the Sabbath and guard the house of the Lord on behalf of the king shall surround the king. And when they say king, they're speaking of this little boy, seven-year-old boy, each with his weapons in his hand. And whoever approaches the ranks is to be put to death, be, be with the king when he goes out and when he comes in. So you can only imagine how closely these guys watched the king and protected him. Now, interesting that what day did the, the priest choose to reveal this little boy as the king, the, the true king? It was on the Sabbath. Okay, why would, you, why would you bring a coup on the Sabbath? Well, there's a couple reasons. One, because that's when the guards changed their shifts. But I think more importantly, people would gather at the house of the Lord on the Sabbath. They didn't work on the Sabbath, but they would worship on the Sabbath. So there would be a crowd. So this was a way to gather and rally the crowd for the announcement of the one true king of Judah. And the people themselves would be so excited because, listen now, these are folks who worship the one true God at the temple. They're not the ones who worship Baal, okay, across town so in Jerusalem. So, so he, he chose it very strategically. Verse 9, the captains did according to all that Jehoiada, the priest, commanded, and they each brought his men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath and came to Jehoiada the priest. And the priest gave to the captains the spears and shields that had been King David's. Wow. So not only are you going to be watching over and protecting this little boy, he went into David's storehouse. These were probably not the weapons that David used himself. These would have been the weapons that maybe his soldiers had, and the weapons from spoils of war. These are weapons that David had accumulated and put into uh, the treasury. So he pulls these weapons out. You're going to be guarding the one child left of the lineage of David, and you're going to have weapons from David himself. Whew, I don't know. I get chills, man. If I were one of those guards thinking about this, 
Wow! And the priests gave to the captains the spears and shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of the Lord. And the guards stood every man with his weapons in his hand from the south side of the house to the north side of the house and around the altar and the house on behalf of the king. So, verse 12, Then he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him. They crowned this little boy and gave him the testimony. Okay, what is that? They gave, he put a crown on his head. This is the one true king. What what Athaliah has done, she stole the throne. God did not give that to her. God's giving it to this boy. Okay, now what does it mean when it says they gave him the testimony? He had a crown on his head and he had the testimony. What is that? Remember we studied in Psalm 19 verses 9 through 11 where it describes the Word of God in six different titles, and one of them is the testimony of the Lord. And that's what that was. They literally had the little boy come out with the scrolls, uh, probably the Pentateuch and maybe more of the, uh, just the Pentateuch really at that time, and he comes walking out a seven-year-old with a crown and with God's Word. And they proclaimed him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. The anointing, again, was important. It didn't always happen when kings would take office. It only happened when there was was controversy surrounding a king taking the throne. And in this case, you already have a sitting queen, and she's illegitimate. And so the anointing was necessary to show, no, this is God's choice. So the anointing was important. Uh, So the first thing Jehoiada did, the priest, was he revealed the boy to the guards. This would cause, and, and, and the people, this would cause them to pay homage, okay, and to protect him. The next thing was to crown him. And then the next thing was giving the testimony of the Lord, giving the word of God. And then finally, let's anoint him. So this was the procedure they used to bring this boy to the throne. Now, write it down. I'm going to read it for you, but let's not turn there. Deuteronomy 17, verse 18 through 20. The three verses. Let me read for you. He's speaking of the king, and God says, And when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. So give the king a book, a scroll, and let him write word for word the word of God into this scroll. And this scroll becomes his, and he carries it with him. Look what it says. A copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, 
either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. God made that a law, a command for the kings that would serve in Judah, that they would know the word of God, they would write it, they would know it, they would lean on it every day, and it would keep them humble, keep them God-fearing, and they wouldn't be filled with control, manipulation, power. Isn't that interesting? So that was the coronation service for Joash. Now, verse 12, latter part of the verse, and they proclaimed him king and anointed him, and they clapped their hands and said, long live the king. As they were doing this at the temple in Jerusalem, evidently, Athaliah heard it. She could hear the clapping. She could hear the hoots and hollers of the people over this new king. And by the way, what a contrast to the way Ahaziah became the king. He did not assert himself. This little boy did not assert himself. He waited until the right time, and then the people received him as king. He didn't try to assume the throne. He didn't try to weasel into the throne. Now, again, he's a child. He probably wouldn't have been able to do that. But look at all the kings in Israel and, some, and many of the kings in Judah. That's how they became kings. That's how pastors sometimes get what they want in churches. They don't receive from the people. They dictate to the people. And I think that's wrong. By the way, when the Lord opens the right door for us and there is property or a building that we're going to purchase, our bylaws say, that first order is for the elders to take, listen to the recommendation of the finance team regarding purchasing land, and then they pray, and they have to come to conclusion uh, unanimously to present to the congregation in a special called meeting so that the congregation can vote on whether to move forward with the property. And I forget what the percentage is. It might be seven, it might be 75%. I don't know what, but anyway. So it has to go through the church. The people have a voice. That's a good thing. Now, I don't think it's a good thing that the people are the ones who do the nominating and electing of who, what property, and it needs to come through spiritual leaders who prayed and are trying to join God in what He's doing then we present it to the people, but they get a chance to speak to it. We do that every year, by the way, in our annual business meeting that happens uh, in September, the end of September. And when we present a name for eldership, we present that name two weeks ahead so that you have time to consider that name. And if there's things you know about that person that are questionable, you have time to come to the elders and share your concern and then the elders can act accordingly. Sometimes it might mean that we actually remove that name from the list. Sometimes we go back and we, we well, we always would want to investigate, so we'd want to meet with that individual, share what, what we've heard, please help us understand this, and sometimes they're able to explain it, and we're able to go back to the person and say, here's what happened. 
and uh, and so and we keep them on the list. But but the people have a voice. They have a way to participate. And here, Jehoiada is giving the people a chance to receive the king, and they do with great joy. They're clapping. I mean, why wouldn't you? He's the only guy left that's part of David's lineage. And you know the Messiah is coming through David, so uh, we don't really have a choice here. This kid's the kid, man. Let's, let's, let's go for him. That's, this is good. Now, verse 13, when Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and of the people, she went into the house of the Lord to the people. That's probably the first time she's entered that place since she's been queen. And when she looked, there was the king standing by the pillar, this little boy standing by the pillar, according to the custom. And the captains and the, the trumpeters beside the king and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets. And Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, Treason! Treason! And she's right, because she's the sitting queen. It was treasonous to raise up someone. But what she's not letting... What she's not saying is uh, what I did to get the throne was treason. Isn't that, doesn't that sound like a lot of the liberals today? They want to call you out for something, but wait a minute. It was you. You're the one that is guilty of that, not us. And it, it was treason in a sense on the surface that, yeah, this is another king coming up while there's a, a standing king or queen. But... This is the Lord's choice, so really it's not treason. It's just it's re, it's returning the, the the reign of Judah to the Lord. And when she looked, she saw that, and she thought, "Man, this is treason!" And she's screaming that out. And can you imagine how horrifying it must have been for Athaliah to enter that temple? where all this noise and celebrations going on. What's going on? I didn't declare any kind of a special day. What's happening here? Walks in and sees a seven-year-old kid with a crown and the testimony of the Lord. She knew what that meant. Can you imagine how horrific that had to be for her to know one got away? And this is her grandson. That's how wicked this woman was. Then Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains who were set over the army, bring her out between the ranks and put to death with the sword anyone who follows her. For the priest said, let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. So what did they do with her? They took her out, laid hands on her, and she went through the horse's entrance. That's what she's fitting for, the horse's entrance. Probably manure everywhere, you know. And, and, and to the king's house, and there she was put to death. So she's crying out, treason, treason! They got her, and they're hauling her off, and she's done. Again, this is a cleansing of anything to do with Baal in the southern kingdom. Verse 17, and Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they could, should be the Lord's people and also between the king and the people. So the first covenant, part of that covenant, is that the people would return to God. You, God, has, God has, has saved the day. He has, he has 
protected the lineage of David, and now he stands before us, this new king. Let's make covenant with God. Let's confess our sins. Let's come back into the right relationship. And then secondly, between the king and the people, that these people would do all they could in their power to protect this little boy as he is the king over Judah. Now, God intends that both kings and citizens have mutual obligations toward each other. In our day, it's no different. We have a responsibility as people of the United States to honor the title president. doesn't matter who's serving as president. You need to honor the, the title because if you stop honoring the title, then the title has no meaning. It can fall. So just because somebody's serving that is corrupt or is not God-fearing, even though they say they are, that's not reason for you to in any way disparage the title of president. They still are the president. And you need to call them that. That's who they are. Okay? And, uh, and then that president has responsibility to the people. In our Constitution, it clearly says that, you know, we are to be protected with our rights and that we are to be able to to honor God, we're able to pursue happiness. These are things that are important and that the king would, would uphold that for the people. Uh, we're a constitutional republic, which means that the Congress, the legislators of both the House and the Senate are to simply carry out the wishes of the people. They are representatives of the people. Now, what we're seeing today is far from that. What we're seeing today is they're not protecting the citizens, not the innocent citizens. They're protecting the guilty citizens and leaving the innocent to fend for themselves. It is a really tough day in our nation. But there are still those in this nation, listen, who fear the Lord. Don't ever think God isn't in control. This nation will not fall until the Lord says it's time for it to fall. And it won't fall unless God judges us to the death as a nation. It's in His hands. And He is God. And it, whatever He says will happen. I don't care who the president, I don't care who the Supreme Court is, I don't care how many legislators are corrupt and calling out. When God wants to do something, it'll happen. Amen? So, then verse 18, Then all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down. His altars and his images they broke in pieces and they killed Matin, the priest of Baal, before the altars. So, in the same way that Jehu, who became king in the northern uh, kingdom, that he supervised the destruction of the house of Baal, the temple of Baal, which was a large structure. In the same way now, this little boy king and his council, I'm sure that was really heavy. He, was, he leaned on his council. But they went out and destroyed the temple of Baal in Jerusalem. But they didn't just destroy the building. It says that they went on to destroy the sacred objects dedicated to Baal and to kill Matin, the priest of Baal. 
So they killed him, and, and, and it says they killed him on the altar of Baal. That was fitting, wasn't it? Now, one reason the people resented the worship of Baal in Jerusalem was because Athaliah had directed, listen to this, for her people to go into the temple of God and take the furniture pieces, the utensils, and things that belonged in the worship of God and brought them to the temple of Baal. They despised her for that. So the people aren't having any problem going out and taking out Matin, the priest of Baal, and, kill, and wiping out the, the building and destroying all the instruments, all the furniture. Uh, Second Corinth, uh, I'm sorry, Second Chronicles chapter 24, verse 7 says, For the sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, had broken into the house of God and had also used all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord for the Baals. So there's reference to that. So, so they're really going after it. And, and by the way, that is always Satan's tactic. From the beginning, from the time of the fall, his tactic is to take what God has created and invert it. pervert it to stick it back in God's face. And it's happened in every age, even into our day. By the way, um, it's playing out right now in a very graphic way in our society. Men who call themselves women. What is that? That is taking what God created in the role of a man and the role of a woman and inverting it and perverting it. And they demand you accept it. Uh, there's so many weird genders today. All of it is the work of Satan. Every ounce of it is the work of Satan. You've got agender or agender, someone who doesn't identify with any particular gender. They claim to have no gender at all. Now, now, what they have between their legs is what God gave them, and that's who they are. But that's not good enough for them because they don't want a God who's over them and telling and dictating to them what gender they are. So, I'm agender or agender. That's blasphemy towards the creator of the universe. Then there's bigender a person who identifies as two different genders. People who identify as bigender display cultural masculine and feminine roles. At the same time, I was in a restaurant last week, and I had to do a double take. And I try not to do that, because I do think, even with people who are caught up in bigender or any of this nonsense, they are still human beings created in the image of God I need to respect that. I don't respect what they're doing with it, but I must respect them as a human being. But I had to do a double take. Normally, I don't do a double take. I just, I'm just i so used to seeing such weird stuff today. But this was a person who was both male and female in their physical being, in their hair, and in their dress. They were both. Okay, then there's gender, you, you heard, heard of this one? Gender outlaw. I never heard of that one. 
What's a gender outlaw? A person who refuses to allow society's definition of male or female to define them. But what about God's assignment to their role? See, they deny that. I don't want that, what God's designed me to be. So they, they are a rebel without a cause. But can we save the questions to the close? Please remember that question. Write it down so you don't forget. Um, transgender. Transgender. This is an umbrella term that encompasses all people who identify with a different gender than what they really are. They would say, they, they wouldn't say it that way. They wouldn't say, I'm going ident to identify with a gender different than the way I was created. Here's what they would say. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, identify with a gender that's different than the gender that they assigned me when I was born. They assigned me. Hello? Just because the doctor said, it's a boy. Where did he come up with that? Did he just out of his head think, ah, boy, girl, let's see, three, two girls this morning, this is a boy. He assigned you? How they'll go to any length to try and justify why they do what they do. There is, no, there is no excuse when they stand before God. Verse 18, And the priest posted watchmen over the house of the Lord, and he took the captains, the Karaites, the guards, and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord, marching through the gate of the guards to the king's house. And he took his seat on the throne of the kings. Wow, David's lineage is restored. So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword at the king's house. Jehoash was seven years old when he began to reign. So after six very dark years, the rightful king of Judah was brought to the throne. Tell me we don't have a sovereign God. I love that. About the time you're worrying, it's too late, it's never going to change, it's been dark for six years around here. You don't know your God. He's in control. Amen? Now, questions. Let's go ahead. Casey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. People who think that they're an animal. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, have you seen the people that tattoo themselves like a leopard and... They have the eyes done with the, the, the pupils that are vertical, and they have hairs pulled out, and they have whiskers put in. Literally, people. And they what? Yeah, they, 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 yeah they, they, they urinate in litter boxes and defecate in litter boxes. I mean, what, what a blasphemy before God to go to that extent. But, but now listen. If you want to know, if you want the explanation of the mystery to that iniquity, you want to turn to Romans chapter 1, where God deals with the ungodly and how He hands them over to a depraved mind. They no longer have the ability to think rightly. They can't think rightly. Because they didn't want to think rightly, and so God gave it to them. Now they can't. I believe, honestly... I believe our president has a depraved mind. Any human being who would come out and say that a 8-year-old, 10-year-old, 
could not have the influence of their parents in choosing what gender they want to be. Can you imagine that? Pre-adolescent children making their own decisions and parents are not to interrupt. That's what he, that's one of the things he stood on as he was running for president. Go and look it up. It's in there. And there's a, and here's the sad thing. There were enough people in this nation that went along with it. That's how far we've fallen. God help us as a nation. And so it's very likely that God will judge us and take us out. It's very likely. It could happen. I'm not trying to, I'm not a doomsdayer. Uh, we won't go anywhere till God says. But that's how nations fall. God is the one who brings about the falling of a nation. Any other questions? <laughs> you want to talk after? Barber Street Bridge. What? Oh. Well, you know, honestly, that's as bad as let's go, Brandon. I mean, Christians laugh about that, but really, that's that's a president you're talking about. I mean, you, 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 we should be praying for our president and praying that God will convict him of the sinful policies that he's writing. But he's still president, guys. He's still president. Amen. All right. That's right. All right. Uh, we're going to close this down. Let's, uh, let's go into prayer. Father, I want to thank you for this evening, for the teaching of your word, because it is light to our feet, a lamp to our path. And we're thankful that we have the Word of God in this day that we live. It's not been taken from us. May we hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against God, as the pledge to the Bible says. And we thank you for your love. We thank you for your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless each of you. Make sure you fellowship before you leave and grab something else to eat before you go.